We're doing things a little differently this week with an episode on mental health awareness. By sharing the personal battles discussed by past guests, including Tom Hanks, Dak Prescott, John Hamm, and Lindsey Vonn, we're hoping their stories can help someone similarly struggling. We also hear from Alex Smith, Kevin Love, Ray Dalio, and Jerry West, who candidly reveal their lowest points and moments of self-discovery. These larger-than-life personalities are proof that mental health issues can affect anyone, and that with help, everyone's capable of overcoming these unseen struggles. We begin by hearing from Dak Prescott and his brother Tad. In 2013, they lost their mother to colon cancer, who was primarily cared for by another brother, Jace Prescott. The burden took a heavy toll on Jace, likely playing a part in his April 2020 suicide. Here's Dak and his brother Tad. Tad's fiance get, gets a call from Jace's longtime girlfriend with the news. Um, how did you find out what happened? It's crazy. All throughout this this quarantine and this offseason, I started experiencing emotions I've never felt before. Um, anxiety for the main one. Um, and anxiety kind of led the rest of them. Uh, and so I wasn't sleeping much. Um, I was probably working out too hard and too much at times because that was kind of my way to get away. Uh, and then, honestly, a couple of days before my brother passed, I would say I started experiencing depression and to the point of I didn't want to work out anymore. I couldn't work out and I didn't necessarily even my, myself know how to voice it. Uh, and as I, I mean, I went to school for psychology. I've seen multiple counselors and I'm and I want to be vulnerable in every aspect of I can. But um, at this time, I didn't know necessarily what I was going through, uh, to, to say the least, um, and hadn't been sleeping at all. Um, but for one reason, one night, um, I sleep the best I've slept till eight o'clock in the morning, um, giving my dad or missing probably 10 plus calls from, from Tad um, and giving my dad enough time to come in my bedroom uh, and tell me what had happened. Um, and so I woke up, probably the best night of sleep I've ever had in 2020 uh, for the, from the worst news, uh, that I, some of the worst news I'll ever get. Me and my brother shared so much. Uh, I mean, he was my best friend. Um, we shared so many conversations. I mean, I was just with him a month before in Vegas, uh, me and him, and um, had a great time together uh, and had some conversations. And I tried to do a lot uh, and always did. And I think my brother know that, knew that. And I think Tad knows that, that I'll do whatever I can for them. Getting to Dak's house. I just couldn't bring myself to go inside yet. Like, I just couldn't see that because I truly felt like, I felt like I'd fail both him and my mom because that was my... Because the last thing she told me was that it was my job and that I had been prepared my entire life to keep us together. And then after she passed, the, fir the first words Jay said to me was, you have to be strong enough for all of us. And I really thought I was. Like, I really thought I was. So for, 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 for him to be in so much pain or whatever it was that was going on, and again, me not to recognize it, because I literally just saw my brother three days before it all happened, and... You know, everything seemed fine. And then so I get the message that, that he's gone. And it's like, 
you know, I just, I failed them all. You know, I failed Dak, I failed Jace because I went there for him. And then more importantly, I failed my mom's memory because I didn't do what she's always asked me to do. I didn't keep her boys safe. But you know that's not your fault. You did everything you could if you'd known. Yeah, if, if, but like I said, I still feel like I should have. I know my brother. And as we said, he had a lot of burdens on him. He had a lot of tough things. And, and, and my sense of saying that is, it showed me of how vulnerable we have to be as humans, how open we have to be, um, because our adversity, our struggles, what we go through um, is always gonna be too much for ourselves. And maybe too much for even one or two people, but never, never too much um, for a community or never too much for, for, for the people and the family that you love. So we have to share those things. Quarterback Alex Smith. I want to take you to uh, 2008. Um, in addition to just struggling, um, you know, still on the field. Yeah. Now comes August, and your personal life just ends up getting upended. Yeah. Um, your best friend David Edwards. Um, how close were the two of you? Yeah. I mean, he was like. Um, David is like a adopted brother uh, in the Smith family, you know? Um, not, not only how close he was to me, I think that this was uh, so hard. I mean, just such a, like literally a member of my family almost. Um, had such individual relationships with every member of my family. You know, I lived with him. You know, he lived, me, him, and Andre lived together uh, my first few years in the league. Um, and truly, yeah, you know, you, you know, whatever it was, just that, uh, you know, zero judgment, unconditional friendship, um, you know, about anything. And so, uh, and, it, and, and it had been there with me, obviously, along the entire ride. Uh, so, yeah, and then, you know, to, you know, when he committed suicide, um, it's, a lot of, it's, a, it's a lot of things you deal with, you know, as a best friend, um, you know, that, that uh, I was so ingrained in what was going on with me and, and football was not going well. And um, I'm in the middle of camp, uh, you know, and there's a lot of things you, you deal with there uh, that I would, you know, you wish you could go back and I could have done differently and could I could have been a better friend. And uh, did I, was I selfish uh, at those moments, um, you know, when he needed me and, and uh, at the same time you're, um, you know, really pissed off at him, you know. Uh, and still to this day, man, I, I think about all the time, my kids, uh, that he's never got a chance to meet. Uh, you know, my boys, uh, my little girl, uh, that, that he never got a chance to meet and be a part of because he was so uh, irrational in a moment's instance. Um, so what made you pissed off at him? Yeah, that he just didn't have the, he couldn't see the bigger picture, you know. Um, that he couldn't, that he couldn't uh, handle it. Yeah, that he was that frustrated, uh, and in a moment, um, just ended it. You know, and so yeah, it was uh, difficult. It definitely brought brought me back. Obviously, at that point, um, you know, football kind of took a back seat. That was the same year. I mean, I, I spent the whole year on the IR uh, with my shoulder, um, which was probably a good thing. Uh, you know, for me to just kind of uh, get through all of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and I think that definitely also was a spark a little bit too about, 
you know, leading up to me kind of, you know, changing my ways and, and uh, you know, not, not trying to be such a pleaser and, and, and uh, you know, a little more kind of living for myself and, you know, what it, what it says about life, you know, a little bit. I think it made me reflect on a lot of those things uh, as I, as I kind of dealt, you know, dealt with, you know, what David did. NBA star Kevin Love. And that season where you've only played uh, 18 games uh, for for the Timberwolves, uh, you know, you pretty much, as I understand it, locked yourself in your apartment, rarely came out of your bedroom. Uh, why? It's just, yeah, I mean, that crutch of basketball was everything to me. That was my, my safe space. And I think a lot of people can attest to that and speak about that when you have such an unhealthy relationship. Listen, I love basketball. It's It's... What I do, it's not who I am, and that was something that I had to, you know, really face and learn. It was really tough for me to, uh, you know, comprehend or understand what I was going to even do with myself. So I didn't have another escape. And on top of that, I'm not around my teammates. I'm living alone. I'm in a city where, um, you know, they a lot like Cleveland, where they live vicariously through their sports and love their sports teams. And my, I, you know, social anxiety was at such a high level that I only had very, very small pockets um, that I felt like I could go out. And, you know, I wanted people, uh, you know, I wanted to feel comfortable around people, but I couldn't just force that. I couldn't do that, um, you know, living uh, the way that I was so that my social anxiety got to such a high point where I didn't want to go outside. What are you thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously, you know, when you get to, to that point and it's day after day being the same, you come to a point where, you know, the darkest moments come into play and, and you know, suicidal thoughts come into play. And that, that the, you know, you start, you know, planning it out and, you know, what would be the, the, the route you would take. And that is, uh, yeah, those are um, really scary moments in my life. What were you going to do? Uh, I mean, I had a number of ways. I mean, it's, you know, the good thing that happens is when you do search that, it, it comes up with the National Suicide Prevention Line. There was a couple ways that I had toyed with, but it was just scary to uh, get down that route and think about the idea of, of, of you know, taking my own life. But it was, um, you know, something that crossed my mind pretty, pretty often, especially when you're in a, mo- a moment like that. Did you ever uh, attempt to? No. Thankfully. Does it ever get to a point anymore where you still have suicidal thoughts or? I think, listen, if you've been down that road and I don't, you know, I don't know how, you know, if whoever's going to watch this, who's, who's had those thoughts before, I think it does cross your mind. And I've just learned to speak my truth. Honestly, I've learned that, you know, nothing haunts us like the things we don't say. So me keeping that in is actually more harmful. So I think that's been the biggest and most helpful thing for me is, exposing it, understanding that, um, you know, it, it is going to make me vulnerable and maybe put me in a, a, a spot where, uh, you know, for most people it could be tough, but I know that there's a whole, you know, group and a strength in numbers out there of people that are dealing with it. And, you know, if we have more people that pay it forward, uh, you know, like we've seen across um, a number of sports and a number of walks of life, that's going to be better. Why have you said one of the best days of your life happened after you started going through therapy? Because I'm just, now I get to be unapologetically myself. Like I, I'm just, I just am who I am. Um, and I have these real flaws and these, you know, things about myself that I'm not necessarily proud of, but I deal with on a daily basis. And 
you know, and playing all my cards, that was the scariest thing that I likely did in my life. I think that's just allowed me to be so comfortable in my own skin and I got to be myself truly for the first time, uh, probably in my entire life. Explain the importance of keeping your mind occupied in a healthy way. I think keeping your mind occupied and on a steady path and continuing to grow can really put uh, depression uh, from that aspect at, at bay. And, and what about being present, have you said, is a big part of mental health? Hard, it's, it's really, really hard. Um, and finding balance, I think those being present and finding balance are probably two of the hardest things uh, in life. And that's something that I, I think we all struggle with. But um, no, I think it's a, a major component when it when it comes uh, to mental health because you can you can only take care of of right now. Like yes, it can set you up for the future. It can heal things from the past. You can learn things from the past. But you know, all we have is right now and the decisions we make. Actor Tom Hanks. You said, you know, on kind of the, the first marriage front once, uh, d divorce brought back bad feelings from the past. You were consumed by guilt. Food didn't taste good. You couldn't sleep. Um, and that, that you couldn't shake the feeling that no matter what you did, your kids would feel abandoned uh, like, like you did. Um, what do you remember from that time? Horribly painful time, fraught with uh, emotion and bad feelings, and um, uh, the, the you know the failures that you go. You know, I thought, oh, I I, um, I couldn't I couldn't be a worse couldn't be a worse father, and I couldn't be a worse human being. I remember I remember all those feelings of as though I had uh, I had cursed innocent beings with my own failings. I think the job as a parent, what's the things I've learned, is to try to guarantee a carefree life for your children for as long as possible. They should not be burdened with the cares of the world until they can handle them. And I felt uh, in the course of being their divorced single guy dad that I was, I was burning them with cares that they, they, that they didn't deserve to have to carry. At the time you were in, uh, I think, therapy three times a week, you said, oh, yeah. you, you said, I was sad, confused, emotionally crippled. I guess the house of cards has to fall in before you start to figure things out. Uh, yeah. How so? Well, I felt like I was a complete abject total failure and everything I thought was working was, was actually not working. It's a place that everybody comes to in their life for one reason or another. You know, I would go off and talk to somebody and say, what? What have I done wrong? And they would say, well, what do you think you've done wrong? Why am I so unhappy? Well, tell me about your unhappiness. And you work through that till you figure out that, you know, number one, you have been an idiot, but number two, you're, you're no longer an idiot. You're in the depths of despair. You just, you just don't see any possibility for anything ever being better. And then one day you kind of like wake up and you go like, oh, wait a minute, maybe things will get better. It's, it's human nature to go through these kinds of, not just depressions, it's not just a, not necessarily a clinical thing, but you just go through dark times. You just go through, you just go through moments where you think, oh man, I'm fucked, and I'll never be anything other than just like this guy that I am now, but you learn. The aid that you can get from just asking these questions of yourself uh, and verbalizing it to somebody who's, who's really a really good student of human nature can help you get through some very tough time. Now, sometimes it sometimes it's the 
it's a you know a priest at the church that you trust sometimes it's a it's a really good friend i've had versions of all those things that have have been the type of people that have said you know you're not a horrible person and this this will pass you just got to have a little bit of faith in the goodness that is inside yourself actor john ham i mean losing a parent at a young age is is I think the only the only worst thing to do is has, is lose a child, which I I was watching my my grandfather and grandmother lose their child, their oldest child. Uh, you know, she's 35 years old. It's too soon. Colon cancer is wildly preventable. I've I've had two colonoscopies myself. It's like you, but that was in the 70s in St. Louis. There wasn't there wasn't the screening. There wasn't the thing. It wasn't you know wasn't on the table. And by the time they had found it, it, it was just too too far gone uh, and you know it was, it's a terrible way to die uh, it just is and I remember being a little kid no capacity to process it and there was no such thing as you know or at least I wasn't exposed to you know therapists or anybody to talk about it so I was just kind of left to my own devices and you know it's 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 a uh, a friend of mine lost his wife recently and he describes this. He says, it's not a. It's not a vacuum. It's not a void. It's a blast crater. It's it's a it's a crater, and your life just explodes, and you you have to kind of manage it. You don't know what it's like to mourn or grieve or go through the, you know, the famous sort of processes, because you're a kid. You think everything lives forever. So, so you're at University of Texas in um, Austin. Your grandma passes away while you're there short time after uh, your dad ends up passing away. And you said that um, that kind of changed everything and there was this profound sense of being alone. I mean, I had friends and I had, you know, sisters and I had aunts and uncles, but I didn't have a mom and dad. Uh, and I, I give thanks, you know, to the people in my life who, who helped me reorient during that time, which were these really close family friends. Um, the Simmons the Clarks and the Wilsons, like they're, they were my best friends, moms and dads. And they each individually met with me and sort of sat me down and said like, look, you're going through a hard time. It's okay, you know, well, you, you're, you're gonna be okay. You just gotta kinda get back on your feet and we'll get you going again. And, and it was profoundly helpful. And um, uh, that's the time at which I, I was Got into got into therapy for the first time. My sister was like, "You need to see somebody." She's like, "You're, you're, you know, you, you're sleeping till four o'clock in the afternoon. Like something's not right. You need to see somebody. You're you're not well." And you know, for me, it was like, "I'll be fine." You know, it's like er, stiff upper lip, kind of Midwestern. Like, don't worry about it. I'm fine. He's not fine. This is not fine. Your friend said even um, when they knew you were struggling, you always had the brave face. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that, I think that's what we're kind of taught as, as whatever, as polite Midwesterners, is like, don't worry about it, son. don't want to overshare, fine. But, you know, seeing, seeing the, the therapist at that time was profoundly helpful because it, is, it does what it does. It gives you another perspective on something that you can't quite figure out. And she was able to really kind of, uh, again, reorient my, my kind of way of thinking. And she put me on a medication that was that changed my brain chemistry enough to where, okay, I'm, 
I'm feeling a little better. I can, I, I can get up and go to work. I can get up and go to school. I can do my work on time. I can, I can, uh, I can self-motivate again. I mean, sometimes that's what you need. And it's like, it's, it's got the most interesting stigma, but you know, people think if you break your ankle, uh, you're not expected to just walk it off. Right. But if your brain chemistry is somehow a little, a little tweaked, you're somehow expected to just deal with it. It's like, well, but there's a medicine that fixes it. Olympic medalist, Lindsey Vaughn. People probably are unaware of how like lonely being an elite athlete can be. Exceptionally lonely. I mean, that's why I got a dog. How many dogs can he have? You know, I have three dogs. I'm, I've become, I'm becoming like the crazy dog lady. So I had to, you know, call it quits <laughs> at three. Um, but, you know, you win and there's all this excitement and, you know, everyone's like, oh, this is great. And then you go home and it's, you're in an empty hotel room in a foreign country. And like, who do I call? I don't know. It's just you're by yourself, and there's not enough, you know, uh, Netflix, Amazon shows to, you know, make you forget that. I was depressed, and you know, it's just it was a really hard time. I feel like everyone's put on the earth for a certain reason, and I thought I was ski racing for a long time. Ski racing is just a vehicle for me to do other things that are more positive and where I can help people. After my, I started my foundation, you know, seeing the impact, like I had a, I had a girl, a young girl who uh, cut herself. And um, after my camp, she stopped doing it. And like that made me so happy. And I was like, this is what I'm here for. I mean, you, you take a, a child that wants to kill herself and I can help her. Sorry. What uh, about her story uh, resonated with you so much? I don't know. I mean, it's like, <laughs> what does a ski racer have to do with, you know, some kid who's underprivileged? You know, it just, I was like, that's how I can help people. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. I mean, it, it, it has it's to be. It makes me emotional because... It's, it's powerful and, you know, I, I never set out to do, I, I just wanted to ski fast, you know, and if I can help one person, which, which I felt like I did, you know, then it's, it means something. It's more than just winning. You know, it's not about breaking records, although for me, it's meant so much to me my whole life, but in the end, you know, what value are you bringing to the world? And I felt like I found that value. Billionaire entrepreneur Ray Dalio. Your son, Paul, uh, you wrote about this in your book, an accomplished filmmaker, uh, graduated college, is in LA for a, a job. Uh, take me through what happened at the front desk in the kind of three year period that uh, followed that of kind of the discovery. Well, okay, so I'll give you the sequence of events. Paul's um, there uh, excited about a new job. He's in the hotel. I get a call um, from the police. Paul had gone up to the front desk. 
um, and taken the computer and smashed it and was then put into uh, jail. Um, and the upshot of it, which we found out in the days that followed, is that uh, he had bipolar disorder, still has bipolar disorder. I guess you never get rid of it. He just knows how to manage it. And so um, that began an experience of working ourselves through the system so that he would, you know, how do you deal with that? I think the statistic is something like 24% of the population in one form or another has had been diagnosed as some form of mental illness. So we all are dealing with this <clears throat> in some particular capacity. My version of that was uh, Paul's bipolar. And so for those out there, you know, there's a path and it's a very, very difficult thing. Those three years were hell, you know, at one point uh, he called me up and, um, you know, he was about to, to take his life because uh, the pain of the depression uh, was just so great. And he just, he wanted to, you know, say goodbye, say, you know, you're, you've been a good dad and so on. And then I, you know, I said, well, you know, I've got to give you a hug. So, um, you know, uh, wait for me and I'm going to come there and we'll, and I'll give you a hug and so on. And I was able to talk him out of it. And there was a psychologist uh, by the name of Kay Jameson who wrote about bipolar. She was bipolar, is bipolar. And he met her. Um, we got them together and that's what got him on the right path basketball icon Jerry West. I had the chance to read your book, uh, your autobiography last week and was pleasantly surprised and really quite frankly shocked at just how open you, you were willing to be in the book and I'm sure it's helped a lot of people who have been through similar situations or who are going through similar situations but you open up in uh, your autobiography about depression, the death of your brother, physical abuse from your father. And I've been told by a couple people close to you that they thought it was really therapeutic for you, in a way, actually writing the book. To what extent do you agree with that? Well, you know, I think there's so many things hidden uh, by people today that uh, probably um, maybe they talked about a little bit more. And particularly if you have a platform, as I do sometimes. Um, I think it can, I think it is therapeutic. I can't tell you how many letters I receive from people uh, thanking me for writing this book and talking about the same things they experienced growing up and talking about how they got through it and how I got through it. Um, I got through it because when my brother got killed, who was the closest to me in my family, um, he always encouraged me when I was little and tiny, I mean, it was tiny, skinny kid. Um, when he got killed, it was like a, a shock because no one is good. He was deeply religious, should ever get killed. And 21 years old, and, yeah, Korean War. You know, right? When I was 13 and, you know, I look back on that day and, and I changed forever. I changed from being a really aggressive kid and I was a tough kid. Um, I changed forever. I changed to be deathly quiet, uh, hardly communicated with anyone. And so my best friend was me. And at that age, you know, if I'd had a friend to be able to 
that maybe had ser ser similar experiences in your life, I might have had the ability to maybe uh, lessen this burden on myself um, that really became a burden. Um, and you know, I just felt, I felt useless. I didn't feel wanted. I almost felt like a, a person who um, was surviving. And I think when he died, there was probably a higher calling for me and said, I, I, I'm going to do something that's going to make him proud. When was the first time you realized you were suffering from depression? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I'm not sure when you're a kid you ever dwell on things like that. But I know I had an awful lot of low days, a lot of low days. And in the summer months back there, it was Even know, when you were a kid? When I was a kid, hot, humid, and you know, obviously there's no air conditioning. And you know, at nights, um, I used to, you know, I just used to think about things I would want to do with my life and how low I would feel someday, um, days, a lot of days. And I think going to school um, for a while was like an elixir. Um, but then when it got, when my career got really sensitive, um, it was just something that was there, something, you know, I would wake up feeling in a great mood an hour later. Uh, I didn't, I felt like I was a horrible basketball player and I was maybe one of the top two players in all of America. And I felt I was not a very good player. And so I think all this self-doubt probably made me more competitive. But it's not something pleasant to live with, it's really not. And I felt there's been times in my life where I've been so low um, that, um, you know, is it worth it to feel this bad all the time? But I've, you know, I've had some success in dealing with that. Um, and How would you I, deal with it? Well, I wanted to try to do things for younger people. I wanted to try to make a difference in people's lives. I wanted to do something to honor my brother. And um, I did a lot of those things. And I think that really helped relieve the, um, that horrible, horrible feeling that, um, some people unfortunately act upon. Thanks for joining us for this mental health awareness edition of the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or emotional distress, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Again, 1-800-273-TALK. Mentalhealth.gov is also a great resource to visit. There you can find tips to start a conversation about mental health and immediate ways to receive assistance. Thanks for listening.